Dear students, I am so grateful to be here. The music was so beautiful. I appreciated that arrangement so much. It touched me deeply to hear that song about our eternal family, of which we are all a part. I'm so grateful to be with you, gathered from all across the world and all across Utah. So thankful to be with you and with Brother Young and all who are here. Just appreciate it so much. Thank you for your prayer, um, Matlock. That was so beautiful. And to hear the testimony from Desmond, thank you. I have had deep feelings for Ensign College for a long time. I taught English as a second language at BYU for years. And often, I would have students leave that program and come to Ensign College, and they would tell me about the unique and supportive environment they experienced the personal mentoring from outstanding professors and the care shown by the missionaries like the Rogers and others. They felt so blessed. And when they would tell me about it, I would tell them, you are so blessed. <laughs> I feel similarly so blessed to be here today. You may be aware, I'm going to talk about something difficult right here at the beginning. You may be aware that there is a growing concern that young adults today are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. A national survey report by Harvard's Graduate School of Education recently found that 61% of young people aged 18 to 25 reported feeling lonely frequently or almost all of the time in the prior four weeks. The internet and cell phones and social media that I didn't have in college have made us all feel like we're supposedly more connected than ever. Yet there is an increased sense of isolation and disconnection and loneliness. Loneliness, as you know, carries significant health risks and can be brutally compounded by feelings of depression and anxiety. But perhaps even more damaging Loneliness leads to distrust, and the fruit of distrust is division. Much has been said about this time that we live in of increased political polarization and division. Loneliness is surely at its core. Loneliness radically cuts people off from human connection, changing the way we think, changing our relationship with others, and changing the way we relate to ourselves. Philosopher Hannah Ardent defined loneliness as a kind of wilderness where a person feels deserted by all human companionship, even when surrounded by others. That leads to distrust in others, and even more, it leads to a basic sense of distrust of oneself with feelings of shame and worthlessness and failure. Though it seems that social media is clearly linked to increased loneliness, maybe it was the epidemic of loneliness that fed social media's success. What we in philosophy call rampant individualism, this focus on oneself apart from others, workism, diminished community engagement, and less religiosity all seem to have increased our loneliness. But the deepest loneliness that we as social scientists can measure seems to stem from a disruption and disorder in family life. 
British historian Faye Alberti defined loneliness as a conscious, cognitive feeling of separation from meaningful others. Hence, if we follow the path of any pain, any psychological wounding, it will lead us to this one primal pain, the pain of separation. That is why Surgeon General Vivek Murthy who declared an epidemic of loneliness in the United States in 2017 and 18, described loneliness as feeling homeless. To belong is to feel at home. It's what Ensign College works so hard to create for you. To be at home is to be known. We are born to be in deep connection with others. We are born to be at home. It is as fundamental to our well-being as the need for food and water. As German analyst Frieda Fromm-Reichmann wrote, the longing for interpersonal intimacy stays with every human being from infancy through life, and there is no human being who is not threatened by its loss. We know, in fact, that an infant, from the time an infant leaves the womb, they have one task they must accomplish first. They have to establish a relationship with a primary caregiver that they experience as consistently available to them. And so from the time they leave the womb, they are searching, looking, seeking, especially primed to look for that mother whose smell they know, whose face they know, whose heartbeat they have heard. We are born to connect. For centuries, poets and musicians and religious mystics have recognized the persistent reality of each of us, a sense of longing in each of us. It fills the music we are drawn to. I loved hearing Tanner's organ playing today and just thinking about how much of our preferred music that we listen to alone is in the minor key. It's not happy major music. It's minor key, and it's illustrative of this human longing we have. It fills the music we are drawn to and is the fountainhead of all creation in all of the arts. What is it we are longing for? What is this human longing? Brothers and sisters, we are longing for home, for our eternal home. In the great Sufi Llewellyn Von Lee's words, there are many people, he says, there are many people who feel the unhappiness of a homesick soul and yet do not know its cause. The longing of the heart is the memory of when we were together with our beloved. The pain of separation is the awakening to that knowledge that somewhere we are, we were united with God. Our hearts long for God and seek to find our beloved. In answer to these deepest longings of every human soul, we have been given the truths laid out in the proclamation on the family. We learn first through the proclamation that the entire plan of salvation is the sacred work of relationships of creating and experiencing home and divine oneness in relationships forever. The sacred work of Christ is to enable each of us 
to experience divine oneness in our relationship with God, with our families, with all forever. Remember what the Savior says just before his, his profound sacrifice in our behalf in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer, that they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect, may be made perfect in one. Whole, that word perfect, not meaning without flaws, made whole, complete, together. The proclamation on the family begins with a statement that pierces through our loneliness, assuring every one of us of complete belonging in a perfect family of heavenly parents who are divine love itself. They are love. And I get to tell my children, I am not a perfect parent, but you have perfect parents. You belong to a perfect eternal family. All human beings, is what the proclamation says, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Each of you is their beloved. The divine nature of our heavenly parents is carried in the composition of your spiritual bodies. Through them, you have been transmitted the capabilities, the powers, and faculties that they possess. Their bond of divine love for you is at the core of your being. In the depths of your soul, you are loved by them. This love is the most powerful transformative force in the universe and the driving reason for the plan of salvation. They yearn for the fullest form of communion and oneness with you and with me, their beloved children, a oneness that is ever more possible as we become like them. It is that oneness in relationships that defines heaven. Heaven is not so much a place as a quality of oneness with others. That is the essence of eternal joy, and it is that which every one of us long for. The purpose of the proclamation is to guide us in knowing the divine patterns and truths that define eternity, joy, and eternal love. We learn from the proclamation that eternity is composed of a holy ordering through complementarity, male and female, in whose union we see the image of the eternal God. As Elder Erastus Snow explained, there can be no God except he is composed of the man and the woman united. And there is not in all the eternities that exist, nor ever will be, a God in any other way 
except they are made of these two component parts, a man and a woman, the male and the female. That is our eternal destiny, to be united as one. In mortality, we witness that we cannot create life except through the coming together of woman and man to form a whole. In the words of Elder Richard G. Scott, a husband and wife are not two identical halves, but a wondrous, divinely determined combination of complementary capacities and characteristics. Marriage allows these characteristics to come together in oneness, in unity, to bless a husband and wife, their children and grandchildren. Their efforts interlock and are complementary. Can I give you a window into what social science reveals to us about this holy ordering? Though we should not expect mortal experiences to describe eternal verities, they can provide insight into the ways in which men and women contribute differently but equally through a combination of complementary characteristics to the sacred purposes of marriage and family life. Consider how both mothers and fathers experience a flood of the hormone oxytocin in the process of caring for their new infant. But for mothers, oxytocin elicits bonding behaviors like cooing and cuddling. For fathers, the same hormone tends to elicit behaviors like tickling and tossing. I couldn't believe when my husband started playing with our baby when we just brought her home from the hospital. What are you doing? When all I wanted to do was just hold her. Both of those are very critical for her development, for their development. These differences foreshadow more extensive complementary patterns exhibited across children's development. Mothers are primed to establish a bond through which emotional communication that is absolutely essential for the development of that infant can occur. Her infant, as I told you, is also primed to bond with her, knowing her smell, her voice, her face. And face-to-face, eye-to-eye, body-to-body, sound-to-sound, right brain, the love center of the brain, to right brain in that baby, they communicate through that bond. In the process, the mother regulates the emotions of this infant who has no capacity, developing capacity to regulate them, and an estimated one million synapses are formed every second in that interaction. And there begins with that mother the most profoundly influential relationship of a child's life, a relationship that will be the strongest and most consistent predictor of development in every domain. But what of fathers? Neuropsychological development indicates that a mother and father are not equal systems. They both form a unique bond with the baby that is important to development. As mothers lay the foundation for identity, sense of well-being, and emotional understanding, fathers lay a core foundation for relational capacity, for mental processing, and for achievement. You have all seen how mothers tend to hold an infant close to her body, while fathers tend to hold babies like a football. And it's so interesting because in in that interaction, a father is allowing that baby to see what the father sees, to look at the outside world. 
The way that father holds that baby is indicative of the role fathers play in shaping how children relate to the outside world. His closeness during a child's adolescence is a predictor of how they experience relationships in adulthood. Lack of father involvement has repeatedly been associated with delinquent and criminal behaviors. Fathers tend to discipline less frequently than mothers, but when they do, they tend to hold the consequence, while mothers tend to be more flexible in reasoning. Fathers tend to play with children differently. They tend to roughhouse with them in ways that build confidence in handling their emotions and relating to their peers. Fathers tend to push you to demonstrate skill and ability, while mothers tend to intervene to help. Fathers tend to foster independence, telling children, you can do it. You can climb higher. You can take that risk. I'll be here to catch you from a secure place of protection and guidance. Father's connection significantly predicts, in fact, it's the most important predictor of college graduation and academic achievement. His presence and his closeness play a powerful role in his daughter's decisions about when to engage sexually and with whom by giving her a deep experience of what male love feels like when it is truly protective. For his sons, a father's presence and closeness provides a personal experience with masculinity that is pro-social, pro-child, pro-woman, not driven by aggression and physical strength and sexual proclivities. I have marveled at this research that illustrates the remarkable complementarity between mothers and fathers. Both a man and a woman are needed to create life and both are needed to facilitate the nurturing of that life. These distinct contributions confirm a long-assumed proposition, one laid out in the proclamation, that the continual and direct loving involvement of both a mother and a father in the home is ideal for children's development. Which leads us to another core truth in the proclamation, the importance of marriage. We are told that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family based in marriage is central to the Creator's plan for our eternal destiny. We are told that children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity, that it is a child's right to have that. Let me again give you a little window into what human experience, as captured in social science, reveals about this. In 1960, in the United States, the out-of-wedlock childbearing rate, that means children born to unmarried parents, was 5% of children. By 2014, and it stayed around the same number, that percentage has increased to 41% of children, nearly half are born to unmarried parents. For decades, researchers have explored what being born outside the bonds of marriage has meant in the lives of children. Hundreds of studies comparing outcomes for children born to single parents versus married parents indicates increased risk in every developmental domain for these children. Poverty, involvement in crime, failing in school, lower graduation rates, 
worse physical health, psychological distress, mental illness, suicide, exposure to hard parenting, aggravated parenting, and abuse. Even when we control for socioeconomic differences, whether or not a child's born into poverty or not, children born to a single mother are at twice the risk for challenges compared to children born to married biological parents. During that same period from 1960 in the United States, the percentage of cohabiting couples with children increased 17 times. Children in these families are also, on average, twice as likely to experience challenges in every developmental domain. Some of this risk is related to the fact that they are twice as likely to have their parents break up during their early years. And instability in family life is very disruptive for children's development. These risks are exacerbated by the fact that being, married to, being born to unmarried or cohabiting parents is also associated with a dramatic increase in the risk of poverty and staying in poverty. Children who experience the divorce of their parents are also at increased risk. Sometimes divorce provides a better environment for children to go, grow up in. But when we look at the broad population, children whose parents divorce are at least two times as likely to experience serious social, emotional, or psychological challenges. Scientists have tried hard to figure out why this might be in addition to economic challenges that often result because of a split income in that family, children who experience the divorce of their parents are more likely to describe a feeling of inner division, a sense of loneliness, of exile, as they try to bridge the gap between their parents' separate worlds. Because children embody the union of their parents in their very physical body, it can lead them to ask, was I meant to be if the parents who came together and brought me into being were not meant to be? We have all seen that many children raised by single and cohabiting and divorced parents can thrive. But there is no question that marriage matters profoundly to children. It is the structure through which a child is most likely to receive some essential gifts, two committed parents, a stable home life, more economic resources, and the experience of being wanted and welcomed. This reality helps us understand another core truth of the proclamation, that the sacred powers of, of procreation, the power of sexual intimacy, is reserved for marriage. As Elder Holland explained, the, essential, the sexual union of man and woman is or certainly was ordained to be a symbol of total union, a union of their hearts, a union of their hopes, their lives, their love, their family, their future, their everything. The vulnerable hearts of children depend upon that union. Each of us came into being from sexual union, and it touches a very deep core in ourselves. That is partly why expression of that power can be a deeply connecting experience, or it can be deeply destructive. 
being harmed or sexually abused is the most disruptive form of interpersonal abuse. And we can see the devastating effects of its misuse all around us. The breaking apart of sexual relations from marriage and from children that was all broken apart is the root of the dramatic increase in non-marital childbearing, in that out-of-wedlock childbearing that is that presents children with such high risks, including abortion, poverty, and other risks. We see the disruptive effects psychologically for men and women of bonding sexually outside of marriage, then breaking, then bonding and breaking, and the profound fragility that results from that. We witness the pain from a, resulting from a disconnected empty approach to sexual intimacy in which others become objects to use for a never-ending quest for personal sexual satisfaction. We see what it has done to the sexualization of women and the languishing of men. I have given you just a brief glimpse into the large body of social science research elucidating why the family, grounded in marriage, where the procreative powers are protected between a man and a woman is described as the fundamental unit of society. There is no institution that has a more profound impact on children's well-being, men's well-being, women's well-being, the economic well-being of society, and all of societal well-being. Prophets of God continually invite us to see the importance and truth of the principles included in the proclamation. These principles teach us who we are and who we belong to. These principles are given to help us know how to experience the deepest forms of intimacy and connection and joy. And they also help us understand why every single one of us experience some pain in family life. Mortality is filled with experience in brokenness from the ideal perfected form of family we all desire. To some degree, all of our relationships will be fraught with some challenge, stretching, and pain. All of us will fall outside the ideal patterns listed in the family proclamation. And our deepest pains will stem from the disruption and disorder in the family relationships. We yearn to be a haven of love and belonging, trust, and intimacy. And that is where the divine plan for our learning and growth and redemption becomes most profound. The divine longing within each of us teaches us the way we long for oneness, but as C.S. Lewis so powerfully wrote, it is an inconsolable longing that cannot be satisfied in the ways of the world because we belong to another godly one. Only God can make us whole. Only God can heal and bring oneness. And that is exactly what he has covenanted to do. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is the being who brings at-one-ment atonement to all of our souls 
and our relationships. He is the great healer, the repairer of the breach, the restorer. He calls each of us his chosen, his beloved, and invites us into a covenant relationship with him. Through ordinance-administered covenant, beginning at baptism, culminating in the sealing ordinance, his sanctifying power is allowed to enter us and change us into beings that are capable of being closer to him, of being closer to others, ever more capacity for that closeness. As Elder Christofferson explained in this last general conference, through our repentance and obedience, through our sacrifices to grow closer to him, and that's what the word sacrifice means. In Hebrew, it means to draw closer. Whenever you make a sacrifice in the day to draw closer to God, you are experiencing more of his power in your life. Elder Christofferson continues, we collaborate with the Lord in the transformation through which we become the kind of people in the kinds of relationships that define heaven. His whole work, every commandment given, every covenant is to develop in each of us the capacity for trustworthiness in relationship with others. That is the ultimate purpose of righteousness, to build in us the capacity for oneness and intimate connection with Him and in family relationships and with all of God's family. The oneness we long for is the fruit of loving Him with our whole souls and loving our fellow men with ever-increasing purity of heart. I was single for many years. My husband and I both were. For many years, I yearned for marriage and children. I desired that a fundamental purpose of my life was to achieve these ideals set forth in the proclamation on the family. Yet despite my most sincere efforts, and Mike would say the same, I could not seem to make them happen. That struggle was painful. At the time, I could not see the miraculous work the Lord was bringing about in my heart through that struggle. My unfulfilled yearnings played a sacred role in inclining my heart to my Redeemer, seeking peace and direction He alone can provide. I know you know that path deepening my trust in His perfect power and His enabling power, His perfect love and enabling power. Covenant belonging to my Redeemer led me to seek and experience His heart of submission, meekness, humility, patience, and love. And in the process, though it seemed none of my dreams were being met, I was being changed and as I was changed, all of my relationships were blessed by greater peace, joy, and love. I and it was a pattern of what I was experiencing with him. Miraculously, Mike and I met. I did marry, and I found the love of my life. But I found that my need for his covenant relationship with me, the Lord's, 
only deepened. Then began the painful yearnings of infertility, where I was invited again to seek his face for peace and assurance. I struggled to know how could I ever have the joy I hoped for in family life without more children. When we were blessed with two children, and they know this well, I then felt keenly my inadequacies and, a weak and weaknesses as a mother, knowing that at times every day to some degree I failed them in ways that I feared would inhibit their growth. I wondered sometimes if the other children I had yearned for had run when they witnessed my struggles as a mother. In my fear and shame, I came to a new and deeper understanding of what his covenant relationship means. My brokenness, my weaknesses, my need for growth is inherent to the story of glorious redemption. The sacrament, just picture the sacrament, what it teaches us of this most beautiful truth, the miracle of union, of communion with the Lord comes through brokenness. His broken heart, His broken body, given for my broken heart and my broken dreams and broken ways. In the broken bread and the poured out water, I receive Him, taking all He offers in His magnificent goodness and unspeakable love right down deep into my own body, where I am remembered. The words in the sacrament prayer, remember, remember, over and over again. And what they mean, it means the parts are brought back together, remembered, brought back together, healed, and changed forever, because each of us have been redeemed by His love. And I will take the sacrament again next week, and next week, and the next, growing ever more able of experiencing greater closeness with Him and purity of love with Him, with my husband, with my children, with my siblings, with my Relief Society sisters, and with all in my circle. When I continue to struggle week after week, I might doubt His capacity to do it, but there is nothing He cannot do and will not do in this great story of redeeming me redeeming my relationships, and making eternal oneness possible with Him and with all. Don't you love studying the Old Testament? <laughs> the Old Testament keeps telling us, I will part the sea. I will rain manna from the sky and be your daily bread. I will break open solid rock and pour out water. I will be your shade from the blistering heat. I will be your warmth by night. And surely I will do it, for I am the Lord. In response to all of our longings, whatever they are, He says to us, I will not leave thee, nor forsake thee. I, the Lord, am with thee whithersoever thou goest. But with everlasting kindness will I gather thee, and with healing will I take thee beneath my wings. 
Though the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed, know thou, my child, my kindness shall not depart from thee. It is in the fullness of that covenant love he is offering of himself to us every single day that we become beings capable of the oneness we so desire. I bear testimony of him. I know his yearning is to heal every single one of us. His yearning is to enable us out of the path of loneliness and into belonging, full and complete belonging in relationships eternally, forever. There is a reason our souls long for that oneness, because it is exactly what His redeeming power offers us. I love Him. It is such a gift to be with you who radiate His redeeming power in your lives. That is why you are here. You have felt the touch of His hand and the goodness of His love and His infinite capacity to restory your life, to restore and restory your life. It's what He offers to each of us. And I bear that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.